This is your host, Tim Powell, from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Troy Titliemeyer, CEO of the MagnaChem Research Institute, a not-for-profit organization that is looking to transform the way geologists and geoscientists interpret the entire hydrocarbon system. During the episode, Troy talks about some of the findings of the Research Institute and why he thinks they could fundamentally change the way operators explore and produce oil and gas in the future. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Troy has to say. Well, Troy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this. We're going to take this one in a bit of a different direction than our other episodes. Uh, you come from the industry, uh, and we'll get into your background in a bit with Trey Resources, but the last year, year and a half, I, I'll call it, is a bit of a different route for yourself. You're kind of in the research, R&D side of the business now. You're running a podcast called The Permian Basin Experience, and yeah, I think you have some really interesting things to talk about, and I think you can bring a different perspective to our minerals and royalties network here and audience. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, as a minerals buyer, the more variables and the more data that you can bake into your acquisition model, the more informed you are, the better you can underwrite. So that's the main goal here. I'll hand it over to you. A little background on yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where are you now? Where'd you oh, go to school? Man. How'd you get into oil and gas? Let's, uh, let's walk down memory lane. <laughs> So I didn't know we were going to open up the whole can, but I'll, I'll make it as fast as I can. I, uh, I grew up born in Ventura, California, so from the beach. Grew up in uh, Palmdale, California, turned into a high desert rat, <laughs> just <laughs> riding dirt bikes and uh, growing up with two brothers and a, just an amazing family that had incredible work ethic that allowed us to ride dirt bikes on the weekends, at least. And, you know, we figured out that it was, uh, you know, it's a grind and you got Monday through Friday that needs to be about work and uh, and have fun on the weekends. So I took that all the way through high school and said, I'm not going to college, I'm going to work. That's what my parents did. That's, that's what makes sense to me. And unique about the motocross experience is I had the opportunity to grow up with a family called the Gosslers and their father is the, the winningest mechanic to live today he's won the most amount of championships he's worked with all the factories that was their dad and i'm like hey i want to be a mechanic because i broke all my bones i can't i'm not going to do the dirt bike thing i could be a pro but i sure love the industry and I, I grew up with the kids i grew up with him and he you know right and i'm going what how do i get started he's kids turn pro his kids ask me hey you want to go on the road be a mechanic i'm like are you kidding me i'm 18 years old yeah. we're gonna travel the biggest cities in the country and do supercross and motocross and professional tv the whole thing i'm going this is you know i literally started saying from that point on i'm just living the dream and uh and then i realized that through a conversation with mike himself papa goose the guy that's been so successful as a mechanic and he says why do you want to do this for the rest of your life and I'm like, what? You know, why, what do you mean, man? You live an amazing opportunity, an amazing life. And what the reality is you're working 80-hour weeks and you're traveling all the time. And, and there's, you know, there's a, a lot of work that goes into that for, to be under those lights and to be part of that situation. It's incredible and that a, the adrenaline is real with motocross. And that goes out of just the dirt bike rider himself. Everybody that's in that industry is chasing that adrenaline which is what brought me to that opportunity. And so I said, man, you're, you're right. And, and so I said, let's, I'm gonna go back to school. First year back to school, had a terrible accident, hit a freaking water truck head on on a dirt bike, <laughs> went into the wow. abyss. 
so that you know at the end of the day it just changes you know it takes control of your mind the aches and the bones are reminders of that this life is very very unique and and you know all the past and all the energy in the universe today is happening right now and this discussion is built on the evolution of your ancestors and mine and it's never been done except for this moment and that's where i live now i live in the moment and i'm chasing that adrenaline in life because it's so fascinating it's so fun it's so beautiful so that uh, that passion went from all right i want to be a doctor of osteopathy and then i was like wait a minute that's like six years of school two hundred thousand dollars i might be out on that i picked up this geology book and it was through uh because i was chasing doctor osteopathy after my accident i was biology class and the teacher said there's this famous oil spill in california and i go what the heck where'd the oil come from and she and everyone's like the pipelines it's all broken the operator fucked up and you know it's leaking all over the ground and i'm like no 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 where is it coming from where the hell does oil come from and that's it man she she met up with her husband, who was a PhD professor at CSUN in California. And I met him, first geologist I ever met. And he said, the two things, you'll never work a day of your life and pay attention to this hydrocarbon generation model. It doesn't really add up. And I'm like, whoa, so that's interesting. Now I have curiosity. I have this opportunity as going back to school and I'm going to create value in the future by the, the work I'm putting in. And I've kept that in context throughout this whole thing where my passion was. And it's this question of where does oil come from? And then I got in the industry and then I become a geologist for an oil and gas company, private equity. And I get into experiencing this amazing business of oil and gas and how lucrative it is and how difficult and challenging it, it is. And so, you know, and so at the end of taking, the day, a, taking a step back real quick. So you're how old when you decide to enter the industry and you work with Trey Resources almost six years, just there, folks on the Permian. It's a very big curiosity around where does oil come from? How does the industry tick is relevant to the fact that you happen to land in the Permian, right? And, and yeah. to what you're doing today. So a little background on that transition yeah. to that first job and what resources was all about and so on and so forth. Yeah, so I was 24, I believe, when I graduated from uh, the bachelor's degree and flew to Midland, met the university, wanted to do my master's there and work at the same time. And I crossed paths with Curtis Helms and uh, just a, a great geologist and just a great mentor. And he worked for Trey Resources and said, yeah, we need a geotech. And I said, all right, what is a geotech? And they're like, all right, you basically assist the department with a data management. And I go, well, that's a great way to learn all the different types of geologists or what, you know, how a department works made sense I said absolutely let's do this and they gave me the opportunity so in 2014 July I got hired and then by the end of the year that the famous hump <laughs> or the apex of the curve is starting to come down and all of a sudden we go into 2015 and we actually operated a conventional-ish play up in the Cherokee platform in Oklahoma. And then we had experience in some wells in, in the Permian. There was all kinds of stuff going on at Trey at that time with different assets, multiple assets. And so it was immediately, you know, major regional geology understanding because I'm looking at basically the lower 48. I'm not just looking at Texas. So I had a big regional look and trying to tie it all together and be a geologist with, or be a geotech, but also paying attention to the geology and helping with that was a, an amazing experience. It was huge. And Dave Thomas III, the president at the time, was just amazing, really successful. And new data management to the degree of how important it is and everything that goes into that. So we are now managing that crash of prices. And we have these assets that are trickling along and we have the ability to put money to work. But man, it gets really challenging 
when you're asking someone to put money to work when oil is crashing. They just, you know, ride this thing out, minimize costs, and just leak this thing out. And it's absolutely the wrong idea. And we all know that, but the problem is, is our predictability. We can't tell the investor with a greater than 20, 30% certainty that the money is going to work. It's money is going to come back and you're going to make more money than you spend. So it's very challenging. So the experience there was getting the investors to understand and also building a plan that we thought was actually going to work. And that was very difficult and it is very difficult in the industry. So you're obviously not drilling new wells. We're managing the bleeding, if you will, managing the decline. And we got through it and we got into this opportunity on the Alpine High. And that's when Apache made this big announcement. It was like six months after we got the deal and we go, man, we were thinking it was pretty cool too. And that's great. Apache's now saying the same thing. And, uh, and we got to drill some wells, but oh man, unconventional drilling. That is the most intense thing. Riding a well to 13,000 feet and then going 7,500 feet out into the formation. Wow. That is incredible. And the amount of data and all that stuff that comes back from that as information for you to make the right decision is so amazing. And so I, I got to learn so much from that. And we had a great budget. They gave it everything we had, so did we. But man, that play was incredibly challenging. Incredibly challenging. I believe it still could work, but it's a challenge. And we need a new model to approach it. And that's what ultimately took me from industry to the research. I said, all right, this is not working. Hydrocarbon generation model is not right. And we know that. But we say, hey, all models are, you know, they're helpful. They're they're not right, but they're useful maybe. And it's like, that was the exception. And I'm going, no, 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 this, there's gotta be something else going on. And there is, there's, and that's what the research institute's all about. So now we have a completely different way to break down this problem. Same data, totally different model to put that data in and make predictions with. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. All right. So real quick, take a step back. So it's Q1, Q2, 2019. You make the switch from industry over to Magma Chem Research Institute out of Arizona. How the hell did this get on your radar? Why did you make the jump? I mean, I, I can, uh, you're a very animated character. So the, you're curious. I think you see something, you run with it. Like you said, yeah. you're living in the moment. I love that about you. Let's drill down a little bit more. What piqued that curiosity? And what, yeah. what is it? Give a little background on the Institute. Okay, so Magma Kim Research Institute is exactly that. It's a nonprofit research institute that has more ideas than there are rocks on this planet, to be honest with you. And it's because it's built on this company called Magma Kim and Magma Kim Exploration Incorporated. Two individuals in particular, Stan Keith and Monty Swan, famous geologists in the hard rock geology community. And when I say hard rock, that's mining industry, critical minerals and rare earth elements. That's different group of scientists than you'll find in the oil and gas industry. And there's this big segregation in geology and that goes into a whole nother thing. But Magma Kim Research Institute had 
these incredible geologists that were paid consultants for many, many projects, three different continents and over 20 discoveries, plus an oil and gas discovery, plus a geothermal project. These guys, when they get paid and they put their minds and model to work, they make incredible predictions and it's accurate and it's all here and now it's all public. They're in their 70s and they're saying, this needs to be taught. This whole story needs to be told. And I said, I could do that. I could help with that. And so I took the opportunity when that discussion was being had and I crossed paths with some of their research in 2016, I believe, at uh, they, one of, uh, Monty came down and he started, he was doing some work with a, a tool company and they came to Midland and to the Delaware Basin Playmaker, I think it was, an AAPG event. And that's when it started. And I started asking these questions and he's like, yeah, we have a completely different model and a way of thinking about rocks in general. And I'm going, well, that sure raises my curiosity. So real uh, quick, because I'm not technical by background, the traditional hydrocarbon model, can you just in layman's terms, just walk through that and, and why you think yeah. it's broken? I don't think it's broken. We're technically proving it and that's already been established. So I want to be very frank and, and upfront that this is not uh, just ideas. This has been applied. It's empirical. And there's there, it's no question about it for the technical community to start really understanding how this actually works. That's another story. But does it work? Absolutely. Can it be defended completely? Absolutely. That's what we're doing with the research institute. That's how it's a thing. But we're just in the startup phase. So the conventional model. We said that the biosphere, so where life begins and ends on the planet, which is the very, very tip of the crust of the whole planet, and it's a very, very thin layer of the whole scale of the planet, where biology begins and ends, that's where oil is made. That's where long chain hydrocarbons and liquid oil is made. And they do that by killing all the life and then they suppress it to temperatures and pressures that were way higher than what the species was actually living in, which is a, an entropy problem. We have to build all this energy with geologic time to cook the biosphere to make the oil. So that's the general model. Okay, so instead of that model, Magma Kim has figured out that there's a specific rock called serpentinite that when I went through undergrad was a very mysterious rock. It's where asbestos ties in to this interesting story. Serpentinite, it's a metamorphic rock, it's an igneous rock, but it's soft. It's not hard like igneous rocks. There's fundamental things about how we study the physical world with the tools we have, with hardness and what it's made out of. It's just an odd thing. And so what happened was Stan and, and this team had a totally different way of approaching it. And they looked for the polyaromatic hydrocarbon we call kerogen. They looked for kerogen in a rock called serpentinite. That has never been done. No one would have ever thought of to do that besides Stan Keith. And he's still alive today. Thank God. So he tells us why he was doing these things and what it was in context with. And that's how this whole model got put together. So serpentinite is a rock that's made way deeper than the biosphere. Serpentinite is a rock that we can calculate and figure out through fundamental geology techniques that it's made at depth, meaning like we're talking 40 kilometers. I mean, it's, it's way down there. And what happens is it gets coughed up on the continents through tectonic plates. It has a huge thing to do with tectonic plates and how they move. A serpentosphere is an actual layer that we believe, and this is where it gets real cool, ocean floors have it. We know that's a thing. We're drilling into it. Scientists across the world are trying to figure out what is serpentinite, how does the planet actually make this stuff. They're doing it. We're doing it in the ocean floors. What's really cool is it's coughed up on the continents. So you're walking around an outcrop and you're like, whoa, there's serpentinite, that really weird rock. Why is it here? How did it get here? 
it's tied to another sequence of very interesting rocks. And again, kerogen, which in the conventional model is a derivative of life. It's this hydrocarbon, really simple hydrocarbon block knotted up polyaromatic hydrocarbon. That's kerogen. And they're saying that comes from the biosphere. Wait a minute. It's in serpentinite. Wait a minute. It's in talc. Wait a minute. It's in mud volcano systems. Wait a minute, there's a whole system, and that's what we're teaching at the Research Institute. We went from the stars, because we found it on Mars, so we know now kerogen is universal, which is a problem to the conventional model, obvious one. And so you gotta have a model that takes it, that can allow it to be on Mars, and can allow it to be in mantle rocks that are way below the biosphere, and allow it to be in reservoirs that we drill in and that make the hydrocarbon that we produce to the tanks. You gotta have a model that does that, and that's the MagmaChem approach. It created that, and it's 30, plus years of looking at the rocks, analyzing the rocks from literally rock to rock around the world, and they did it. It's here. The process is understood. So now it's teaching the process, which is going to fundamentally change the way people operators produce and drill for new targets in the near future. As fast as we can learn this, as fast as we have a new industry that's making a ton of money. Interesting. And you're very passionate about this. So I'm, I'm very engaged right now. But where my mind goes is, okay, how the oil and natural gas is created is really irrelevant because we still get back to the same, the ground zero of an oil and gas company developing out of the ground. No, where am I missing this? Yeah. So are you familiar with petrophysics? I am not. Let's just assume okay. no one else is either. <laughs> you can educate yeah. me and walk through it. <laughs> All right. Now stop me at any time because I get on the road and I just start driving. All right. Petrophysics is the science of taking like a gamma ray radiation and we drop it down the hole and we drag that gamma ray radiation. So it's this ball that's just shooting out radiation into the rocks and the rocks are giving back a signal. And that thing paints us this picture of the vertical section of the rock. That's how we know the Permian Basin cartoon figures are relatively accurate from formation to formation. It's a fundamental tool that we use to figure out lithology of our target and what it's made out of. But most importantly, petrophysics is making a prediction about how much oil you're going to get out of this reservoir versus how much brine slash water and gas. You calculate that based on these these anomalies in that petrophysics. So when that there's not just gamma ray, they have all kinds of different tools. They send sound waves and everything else, and they so they combined all that data that's dragging up the same rock, and they calculate space. So you got a room, you got space in that room. It's 100% open because there's no furniture. You start putting furniture into it, you start losing space. Your porosity has a scale of zero to a hundred. 100 being the empty room, zero being the full room. So they calculate space and then they make the assumption that the oil and brine and gas that is sitting in that pore space right now was migrated there. Meaning there is a pre, like a, a preconception idea that what the tool reads is how much this reservoir is going to make because that's what's sitting there negative the whole hydrocarbon generation process happened at that location so when we go into old rock that's like 300 million years old right it's just been sitting there and we have the technology now to go poke around and depressurize this system that naturally came together and naturally made hydrocarbons 
it's sitting there and you're messing with it. Now, when operators go back into these holes, it's a totally new way of looking at the way hydrocarbon generation at that location is actually being triggered. So what we're seeing in the results and like technically, people are changing the chemistry of their frac fluid. There's something going on with the fluid you put in reservoir and the fluid you get back. So when we charge these things through hydraulic fracturing, it is manipulating that system that made the hydrocarbon. If you do it right, you're gonna have great wells. If you do it wrong, you're gonna plug up your porosity and permeability completely and you're gonna have a decline curve that dies in a year. That's absolutely true. That's a hypothesis, obviously from my part, cause I'm not in the industry anymore, fracking wells and changing the chemistry, but you can see it. People are doing it. The operators are getting better. It's totally a thing. It's 100% a thing. So. All the EURs that have been calculated and our ability right now to look at an asset and say, you can definitely make money because this, all 10 of these wells did about this performance over this much time. We can now calculate the economics of the future performance of that with some reasonable certainty. And at $80 oil, we're making money. That is totally going to change. The decline curves of the past look nothing like the future. So do you foresee in unconventional basins, the decline curves flattening out and it's not this flush production, drop off the cliff type mentality. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a question that I go to sleep thinking about, man. <laughs> so, you know, you it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of effort and it's going to take money. And right now, there, a lot of people aren't getting a lot of money to, to keep going with this. So it's a very interesting thing to see what mergers and acquisitions are going to do and how this future is going to go. But if I was to really think about the unconventional decline curve specifically on an individual well and, the, and what's going to actually change. The IP is drastically going to get better. So, and I've said this before, cause I saw this in the data and I see this in what our understanding is with hydrocarbon generation. And if it's, it's just there, you can take the ratio. So how this mass balances is the idea that when you have an initial production, so you have 24 hours to produce the well, and it's going to tell you how good the well is going to do basically, right? You get kind of some pressure data. You get really to feel the reservoir for the first time in the first 24 hours of drilling and completing a well. In that 24 hours, if you look at the brine, you know, it's, it's tough to do because it's not reported real well in, in the lower 48. If you look at the brine ratio, so the amount of barrels of water slash brine versus oil, it's like, I don't know, best case scenario, two to one or something like that. And it's drastically gets worse as the well produces. It starts making just as much water, or maybe even more water brine and the decline on the oil goes, it's going down. That ratio is your mass balance. The system is connected to the brine. So if you have an 8,000 day barrel brine well and a 2,000 barrel a day oil well, 10,000 total barrels volume, what we're doing and what I'm suggesting is gonna happen in the performance of these decline curves is that ratio is gonna change and it's gonna be a good change. It should be pretty dang drastic. And it all goes back to a USGS paper back in the 90s, Lewin paper, his, he did this in the lab. He showed how you can manipulate the chemistry of the water and this is having an effect on getting oil out of the rock. He didn't know, he didn't really understand it at the time, but he, he definitely does now. And, and we're gonna talk about it with Magma Kim and all that stuff. So it's been theoretically there. And so now all I'm doing is just trying to keep a mass balance and give you an idea. The IPs are gonna change. Maybe the decline curves can flatten out, but dude, you're talking about some serious engineering, in my opinion, to keep the energy level high as you're producing a well 
is very challenging. You're drastically decreasing the energy, right? You're pulling as hard as you can, the fluid and the heat, everything out of that rock. You gotta look at it as an energy problem. The engineers know that. That's why there's the whole choking thing. And some operators are saying now they're letting their fracks uh, marinate, if you will. And they're, they're putting the en energy into the ground, holding it for like a month and then producing it. And it's like, whoa. That was, it did better. <laughs> You're going, okay, this, that, that makes sense why it would do better. There are chemical reactions happening in the reservoir, in the fluid, and it's happening at the interface between the oil and the brine. It's a magical thing, and we're messing with it. So for 100 years, we've been messing with it all in the wrong way, in my opinion, and that's where the industry's at. It's not technically recovering the hydrocarbons correctly. We now have the ability to do that, and we're gonna see a drastic change in performance. I totally believe in the geologists and engineers that still have a chance to do this. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks, now let's jump back into the episode. So MagmaChem, you guys are trying to push and educate this model of the world to then enable companies to embrace that and go down a different road with chemical mixtures or engineering plans? I, or are you guys tinkering with stuff in-house on chemical solutions and everything? Where exactly do you fit in today? So we, like I said in the beginning, we have more ideas than there are rocks on this damn planet. And this is one of those things without question. We definitely have ideas that can be applied to this, of course. So it's just getting the funding, getting the right team, getting the right project, you know, building building what that needs to be is the challenging part. So MagmaChem Inc., the for-profit business that's been consulting, that's still a business completely running. That's MagmaChem.com. MagmaChem Research Institute is .org, and that's MagmaChemRI.org, and that's where we're saying, listen, we can elevate the industry. We can elevate everything that's out there if people stop and took a look, a deep dive into this, and it's intellectual limit that is guaranteed to be hit and you're going to hit your head against the wall a few times because it's a completely different way of thinking about rocks but it's highly highly predictive and that's what's so fun about it that's why geologists do what we do that's why people love discovery i mean it's that action of finding something that no one else has found or done and so that the, these industries will never die but we can get drastically better and if we're going to get this out in the public and we're going to have the ability for the public to say, I'm going to use this as a baseline and then I'm going to go make my own discoveries because this is my project and these are my ideas. Fine. I love that. Like, tell me what you discover. Write a paper. Let's put it at the APG or something. I love that. But you got, we got to get there. We got to get that foundation out there. We got to get the, the model book, if you will, that really allows people to say, oh, if I have that and I have this, then I have that, right? Or if I don't have this, I don't have that. They make, you're just making calls. You're de-risking with all the data that we have and making the right prediction. Where are you at today? Our industry operators using your model? Has it been implemented in the real world? Or is this is all in the academia world. 
No, necessarily in the academia world. The research institute's a weird little spot, man. It's hard to get out there and you know, you got a for-profit business that you're dealing with. So all the projects, which we have online, you can go to the success list of Magma Chem and it goes from 1988 to about 2007. And then that's when they really switched heavily into oil and gas. And they had a project in Norway with their friends at Statoil. They were applying the ideas. They're going, man, this is really cool. And it was very interesting. And the story is amazing. And we're telling, they're, they're here with the Research Institute. These people use it. They're the ones doing the testimonials on our website. They understand the value of it. And they are out there making predictions with the Magma Kim science, just like anybody else that's crossed paths with Magma Kim. I mean, it's, it's a very effective tool. And, uh, and that's exactly how it's being used. So can't answer your question directly if there's operators that are, you know, absolutely using and applying this, but they're, they got to be picking at the ideas. I mean, it, we're all using the same data. It's just a different way of thinking about it and, uh, and applying those right tweaks. So if you know anybody, we'll definitely, uh, would love to team up and do a project. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the tie in to this and why I wanted to have you on since this is a minerals and royalties podcast is that I think the minerals and royalties game, if you want to, for lack of better words, call it that yep. it's all about looking at data, looking at operator behavior, and then trying to reverse engineer what you think those operators are going to do and then buy minerals under them so that they can get developed and you can get cash flow and return yeah. yield to your investors or and your management team. Yeah, I just thought it'd be interesting if this is something that operators are going to start tinkering around with and it, it influences behavior. It's something minerals buyers should have on their radar. And if it's going to change the performance of the well and the EURs of wells, that changes underwriting criteria, right? Right. Now, the game, as you referred to it, is change. And if you haven't adjusted or you're not planning to make that adjustment, then you're going to get left behind. So this community that I'm speaking to right now, I believe are the, that's the community that's going to actually make the real discoveries or at least raise the type of money that we need, get the right team in place to make these discoveries. It's not going to be the geology community or maybe even the engineering community. It's, it's, we're built to be skeptics, right? And you guys know risk aversion. So now you're saying, wait a minute, you're kind of de-risking. If I understand this correctly, I can make a prediction that's more competitive and more value than people that aren't using this perspective. Let's do that. Let's see what happens. Let's see what drops out. You're changing the game. You're adapting to how this game is going to change without question. And I am in full support of everyone picking up this book and understanding how the process of geology actually works on this planet. It has biology implications. It has human health implications. It's, it's incredible what has been discovered and what's being told. We're being socially responsible. So it's not just about environment. This is a socially responsible geoscientist and a way to approach problems that make the best predictions at every scale and every level. Well, Troy, this has been fun. You're uh, quite the character. I've enjoyed speaking to you. <laughs> I hope to meet you in person at some point. Where can people learn more about this? I know you have a podcast, The Permian Basin Experience, which is kind of your media platform to talk about this. If people can check that out, they'll learn more about this, right, in the conversational yeah. format, I imagine. Right. Yeah. We're talking to the guys that are completing the wells. We're talking to the guys that, you know, whatever. Yeah, we, we got all kinds of people that are on that show and the oil and gas focused. Yeah kind of loose. It, it doesn't allow us to be uptight and technical. That's happening in the Magma Kim Research Institute. So we have a, a LinkedIn page that we post, you know, when we have these webinars and we've gone through it. So if you haven't been familiar, haven't seen that, we've done it. We went, we started with the anomalies using the UDH, what we call the ultra deep hydrothermal model. We started with the anomalies of the conventional model. How are all these anomalies addressed 
with the conventional model. Usually it's not. It's removed. And they're like, it doesn't help me make predictions. UDH model uses them all. So that's why we started with that as an introduction. Then we went into serpentinization, which is, if you haven't seen the new Cosmos episode, Tyson Neil deGrasse Tyson is now talking about this process called serpentinization. He doesn't know the geologic context of serpentinization. He understands theoretically what's going on, and that's why he mentions it in the show. But when you have it in geologic context, like MagmaCam has put it together, that changed the game. And now we have this relationship that takes deep rocks and it connects them to the rocks we drill into or the to the rocks you chip off on your hike with your family and you're trying to figure out what is going on in this rock. Where did it come from? What's the story of this thing? It's all integrated. It's a completely integrated deal. And those webinars are happening almost weekly. We're going to get done with presenting the UDH model. The last thing is the application of the project they did in Norway. So it shows how they used it. It's a case study. That's the last show that we'll do, but it's all the conceptual stuff. It's the years of putting the rocks together, doing the analyses. It's just an incredible story that we're telling. And then your resources are the website. We have a PhD, Miss Jan Rasmussen, who is an incredible writer, and she's written a ton of publications. She basically has a PhD in MagmaChem on uh, how you can put this into neural net and machine learning and all that stuff. She did that in the 90s, man. <laughs> I mean, this story has been there. It's just now we have the technology and the curiosity and this, for me, it's the environment that's stressing everyone out. It seems to be making them more aware and more engaged and more questioning. You know, if you're getting paid, great. You're not worried about new ideas. I feel like we now are. And so it's good timing for us to come out and do this. And it's growing, man. We're starting it and uh, it's out there. We debate. And that's the best part about it, man. It's it, We're bringing back the passion for understanding what's going on in all levels, man, in all levels. We don't shy away from any conversation because we can get through it. Your understanding and your experiences are providing me value in this conversation. And likewise, I'm not thinking the way you think, but I like the way you think. Let's create something new. Let's invest today to create the best future we possibly can. Take action to create something, man. It's, it's it. So that's that's how you can find us. <laughs> Good stuff. All righty. Well, Troy, best of luck with everything going forward. You know, uh, energy creates momentum, right? And uh, you definitely have that. So I wish you the best of luck. Hopefully Appreciate people you. in our network see some value in it and reach out. And uh, in the interim, you know, we'll be in touch. Yes, sir. Anytime, man. I really appreciate the opportunity, sir. You bet. Thanks for Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.